There is power in telling and sharing stories and far too many stories in this country, in Australia, aren't given the voice or the platform to be shared. My guest in this episode is both a storyteller and a community creator. Welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly and courageously amongst our busy and messy and often uncertain world. I'm Ali Hill and as a psychologist I know the importance and the power of both storytelling and connection to identity. Marley Silver is a proud Gamilaroi and Dungari woman living in Sydney. She is a co-founder of Titus for Titus, a social media initiative which is dedicated to celebrating Indigenous women and girls through storytelling. Marley also writes, produces and hosts her own podcast titled Always Was, Always Will Be Our Stories where she interviews inspiring Indigenous role models who are working to change the world one day at a time. Marley is also an author with her first book just being released, My Titter, My Sister. This book is both stunningly written and beautifully designed, weaving optimism and heart through tough and important stories. We talk in our conversation today about growing up as the only identified Aboriginal person in her school. Sorry, the second one, her other one was her sister. Being a role model of storytelling and community connection and the power of that when people start to share their stories as well as the stories of the generations that have gone. We also talk about the residual trauma of the stolen generation and how it actually lasts much longer that maybe we give full consideration to. Marley loves sharing yarns and her warmth, connection, optimism and drive are all incredibly evident in this conversation. So please tune in to the storytelling power that oozes out of Marley Silver. Marley, welcome. It's, it's such a delight to be, to be chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me um, and it's nice to virtually meet you in this new era. That's what we all do, I guess. It is what we do. I have said a, um, certainly with the podcast, my preference and certainly what I have moved to is being able to do these face-to-face. I think the dynamic is so much more um, with the, the conversations that you can get into. But in this world, uh, virtual is where we meet. It's where we yeah. <laughs> So um, I didn't want to postpone or put off having these conversations. So, you know, we've all adapted. So, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's great to be able to connect with you, with you virtually. I want to start with an opening question um, and we'll talk a little bit about the podcast uh, series that, that you record and, and certainly put out there. But it's a similar question that I know you kick off with. I want to ask that question of where are you from? So I am a proud Gavillaroy Dungari girl who was born and raised um, in the Sutherland Shire on Darawal country south of Sydney. So right now I'm coming to you from my state-of-the-art uh, podcast studio slash bedroom, um, <laughs> which is on, on Darawal country quite close to Cronulla Beach. Um, I've yeah, lived here my whole life. Um, it's a very naturally beautiful part of the world. Um, means I've got a really strong connection to the ocean. I'm be near the water, um, no matter where I am. Um, and I, I think it's because of how much it's, it's played a big part in my upbringing. Um, yeah, live here, uh, with my family, my mum and my dad, and my younger sister, um, yeah, and it's it's definitely been an, an 
interesting um, experience for our family dynamic being in this COVID situation and um, going through a whole bunch of stuff together and, and I guess um, learning some more stuff about each other and um, yeah it's uh, it's a, it been a great place to, to grow up and had a massive um, impact on, on my identity and how I kind of express myself as an Aboriginal woman. Yeah it's you know, when you talk about kind of family and, and navigating these times and restrictions and isolations and, and different conversations and the way that we turn up with it, I think we're all being asked to do things that are quite different um, at the moment. But yeah, I love that kind of connection. I'm coming to you from Yugambeh country up on the, uh, in Kurumban on the Gold Coast and, and certainly that connection to uh, salt water and, and water is something I can, I can connect with. Um, you know, earlier in the year when we were in lockdown, we were taking the kids for a walk along the beach and we were kind of going, this is a pretty, not a bad place if, if you need to be, uh, you know, pretty much at home and going out once or twice a day. It's, it's a pretty scenically um, beautiful kind of place to be. One of the movements that you have been a founder of or a part of is a movement called Titus for Titus, which is dedicated to celebrating Indigenous women uh, and girls through st storytelling. Um, I might, I'm interested in what was the, the idea or the impetus behind founding or, or starting that movement? Yeah, it really um, comes from quite humble beginnings and, um, you know, we can look at it now with a lot of kind of shock because it has become so much bigger um, than what we intended. And when I say we, I mean me and my younger sister, Keely. Um, in 2018, the NADOC theme of that year was Because of Her We Can. So we saw our women, our aunties, grandmothers spotlighted for the first time um, in such a massive way. I mean, you know, obviously in our community, we've always seen um, the matriarchs as kind of the pillars of our leadership, but on a more public facing or outward facing level, um, our women were being put at the front and it was amazing. And uh, it, it's interesting because even now I speak to a lot of people and they all say, you know, men and women that it's their favourite ever NADOG theme because it was so beautiful. Um, and we were really inspired by that. And I guess getting towards the end of that year, um, felt a little bit anxious of what happens when it finishes because each year there's a new theme and we didn't want to lose the momentum we saw there and it also highlighted that, that there was kind of a gap um, across media both traditional and social media where you know our, our women weren't didn't have a platform dedicated to just them um, it's I think you know I had seen similar sort of um, social media movements or pages or um, websites even uh, that focus on African-American women or um, other women kind of internationally that I thought were really cool and I, I guess I, I just thought we could do that here and we could you know um, put this spotlight on people who are doing amazing things all across the country who otherwise don't have space to tell their stories. So the name is what came to me first, Titters for Titters. So Titters, an Aboriginal slang word that means sister. And so it's all about women supporting each other. And um, yeah, then we kind of just started the page and started by sharing stories of women that we knew personally. And it grew so quickly. And the best thing, um, this like one of my favorite kind of shifts in our journey was going from me sliding into people's DMs being like, hey, I heard this thing from so-and-so that you're doing this, would you like to post? Uh, would you like us to post about you? And now it's become 
people messaging us and saying, oh, you know, I know this amazing woman or I'm really proud of myself because I'm the first person in my family to graduate from university, whatever it is. I've never, ever said no to a post um, because, you know, I think people really understand that we're a space for really positive stories. I think um, what might be a bit different to our our platform and, and some others that exist because there are there is this incredible rise of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have um, pretty big platforms on social media is that, you know, I don't think you can ever be fully non-political when it comes to Aboriginal issues or being an Aboriginal person, you're born politicised. Um, but we try and be a space that is inherently positive and doesn't get too much into that stuff and not because we're fence sitters and obviously we have opinions and things like that, um, but because what we post is kind of dictated by our community and we want everyone to be invited um, to share and, and not feel like they can't share or not feel like, um, you know, there's things that they inherently disagree with that we would be promoting and, and things like that. So um, it's also a place that I, I find um, a lot of non-Indigenous people feel is a safe space to come and learn. And I think that that's really important. Um, we've had so many um, non-Indigenous women particularly um, kind of non-Indigenous mums. Um, I, I found that's a really big part of our demographic. Um, I think it's probably because my first iteration of my podcast was with the Mum and Me Network and that's kind of their um, demographic as well. And they just can't, kind of came to us hands in the air, you know, I, I don't know enough and I want to make sure that my kids grow up knowing more and, and are better um, kind of people in society. So that's, that's really cool. Um, and yeah, now it's it's a lot bigger than what it once <laughs> what it started as, and um, yeah, it, it's it's such a an honour to be able to just tell stories because I guess at the end of the day, um, it's not complicated. That's that's really all it is. This might sound like a, a grossly unfair question, but I'm interested in are there any stories that you've heard or that people have you know now put into your dms rather than you reaching out that have stuck with you like if you could pick out one or two and when i say it's grossly unfair because there's probably thousands um but, but what are the ones that that kind of come to mind if you think of the stories that you go wow you know i think you could ask me this question every day and i'd give you a different answer um but the one that has really been playing on my mind recently was a young girl who messaged us with the story of her grandmother and her grandmother it was kind of um her family history was sort of three generations of being stolen and um her she had cut her her i think one of her parents had been taken away from their their parents as well and um she grew up with the stories of what her grandmother was like, but had never met her, didn't know where she was, um, didn't know what had happened to her, all this sort of stuff. And then right at the beginning of this year, before all this craziness um, kicked off, she managed to reconnect with her grandmother and went back and um, back to her, the town where she was and, and got to sit with her and hear all of her stories. And in the time that they'd been separated, someone had actually written the biography of her grandmother. And so she got to receive the book with all the stories kind of in there and, and started building this like relationship with her again and, and reconnecting and it was this really beautiful thing um and unfortunately her grandmother ended up passing away a few like two months later or something so it just to me it was so incredible that the timing had worked and that there was you know um you know this 
as much as there was so much tragedy in her grandmother's life and all these things that she shared, she was still this really strong and positive woman who um, had tried to live her life to the fullest and was able to give her kind of wisdom and experience to her grandchildren um, through this book. And it was just so amazing. And um, she, yeah, so her granddaughter wanted to share it to kind of celebrate her grandmother and, and talk about how inspired she'd been and how, you know, moving ahead, the stories of who her, her grandmother is were going to be what guides her. So that's the kind of stuff that happens all the time. And it's so incredible and every time i read something like that i'm like oh my gosh this is amazing but i'm not surprised because like that's who we really are that's what we are um you know as people and and that's our strength so it's um that was really special and i happened to get interviewed by um vogue australia for an article like a couple of days after she uh, she shared that with us and i got asked that same question what's one that stuck with you and i told the same story and it ended up in an edition of vogue and i didn't realize it was going into print so the next time i heard from her she was like oh my gosh i get a monthly subscription of vogue and i just opened it and then you've spoken about my nan and this and i was like i completely completely forgot about that. I'm so glad that it happened to fall into your hands. Like, so it was really nice again, just being able to, because there's this ripple effect that happens every time we share someone and whether it's stories like that or a woman who's just starting a new business or trying to, um, you know, get stuff done. We've done in, in the past, I remember posting about one woman who was literally launching her website for her business that day and she sold out of all of her products before the like website was fully functioning. So, you know, that's the power of it and that's it's a nice to be an enabler. That's amazing and, and I've, I've been getting goosebumps as you were sharing sharing that story. What came to mind as I was listening is the connection to identity. So the storytelling and and that sense of connection to when we talk about identity that you know the stories we tell about our past our present and our future where where we're heading to with those and whether it's that story or, or many others how does that start to i guess have an impact on or where do you see the dynamic of storytelling and identity woven into each other and maybe even your own uh, kind of sense of identity in the space that you're creating yeah it's um it's interesting because I feel like um, for my own like background and an identity experiences that I wouldn't, I don't think I would have been able to start the page if I wasn't hundred percent sure of like who I am and, and what it means to be an Aboriginal woman in, you know, 2018 at the time when we launched it. And I um, had been working in the Aboriginal space ever since I left high school, essentially, um, I mean, like, obviously I've, I've known my, well, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense I've known I'm Aboriginal my whole life. And, um, kind of, it was only when I started high school that I realized that it, that made me different to, um, a lot of my peers because they kind of threw it back at me when they saw that my dad was dark skinned and, and asked lots of questions and kind of put, um, you know, the whole expectation of Aboriginal Australia on my shoulders as the only identifying student at the time. Um, and there were so many things that kind of I and um, my sister faced throughout our high schooling that forced us to um, probably go through, I think everyone goes through an identity journey and, and figures out who they are, especially, you know, in their adolescence. But ours was kind of put on a fast track because we were being asked all these questions all the time and expected to know things or expected to be the spokespeople for our community, which is ridiculous because we're 
two individuals and, and we have one experience and also there's 60,000 years of history behind us, which we could never know in its entirety. But if um, you just get us across all of that, that'd be great. In the yeah, next that'd be really good. <laughs> Especially like teachers would be like, it would be really good if you could just do that in front of this person, do a speech or something and make us look good or whatever. Um, and as much as it was a real struggle at the time and really, um, you know, painful and it caused us both my sister and I to kind of feel on the outer of our um, peers in hindsight it kind of set me up to probably be a lot more sure of myself earlier than you know someone who doesn't have to go through that and so yeah I knew exactly I knew even though I wasn't 100% sure what I'd do as a job I knew that whatever it was it would be in some way shape or form giving back to communities so I started straight out of school in volunteering roles for um, an Aboriginal education um, charity and, and a whole bunch of other things and then they developed into jobs and kind of worked in the non-profit space for a while and then um, worked for an Aboriginal communications agency around the time that I launched this and all that sort of stuff and it was those collective experiences and the also the kind of great privilege I've had in, in getting to meet so many amazing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women from a whole bunch of um, different backgrounds and communities and I've travelled all across the country and spoken to all these people and um, heard their stories and heard their concerns or learnt from them um, and that kind of just I, I think all of it sort of funnels into the, the pathway that I've now taken. Um, and so that that's what the, I guess the context is for my own identity leading into building this. Um, and then when it comes to kind of adding all these layers of other people's stories on the page and, and hearing their identity experiences, it's also opened my eyes to, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've always known that there's no one way to be an Aboriginal person, but I think just learning different pathways around how people have, you know, one, one kind of experience that we've seen quite a few times in the women we've spoken to, which was quite confronting to me. And also um, I still like can't even fully understand what it must be like is those who kind of find out later in life, you know, who, that their family is Aboriginal, whether it's because they were in the foster care system or um, because their grandmother kind of talked about it on her deathbed like it's literally stuff like that and that to me is so shocking because I, I can't imagine not knowing that I'm Aboriginal because it's such a big part of who I am it's dictated everything that I've ever done and um, you know it's something I'm so proud of I think it's so intertwined with who I am that I can't imagine what it's like to be 18 and kind of have this culture being given to you and and I think a lot of women talk about I've always known there's something missing in my life or I've always had these questions about my family and all, all this sort of stuff um and now this kind of makes sense but then you kind of start trying to learn who you are and what it means and all this sort of stuff so much later that it becomes this whole other thing and then just so many pressures on it and I think that um we both within the Aboriginal community and outside of it can be quite, um, I don't know, not as understanding of that experience um, as as some others. So that, that's been something for me that's been a big learning and I think um, it's something I'm still learning and 
um, it's so amazing. And then on the other side of the, the spectrum, there's people we get to talk to who English is their third language. Um, and I'm like, have this great envy that they have had, you know, an upbringing that's on country and they have language and stories and stuff that they're raised with, um, which is so incredible. And they're kind of these um, leaders who are carrying on that tradition for their children and things like that. So the spectrum of it is, is really powerful. I think that's something I'm really proud that we're able to showcase. I think that it helps um, the broader community kind of understand the you know, dismantle a lot of the stereotypes around what an Aboriginal person looks like, what they do, where they live, etc. which is kind of the same stereotypes we put on any kind of minority group. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's really, really cool. And I am really um, glad that we're able to do that. And I kind of want to keep doing it because we'll never have the full picture because we're always changing and growing. That, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sitting here and even for me, as you're kind of talking through, it is that dismantling of stereotypes of groups of kind of going, well, either you've had this or you're this. Like we, we very quickly as human beings want to pop boxes. And, and the problem is that particularly for First Nations people, I think what we have done incredibly poorly for hundreds of years is, is pop in a box. Um, but yeah, it was, um, thank you for sharing that because even as you mentioned before and you were ta talking about your own story, there was a statement where you said like, I've always known, which made me go, does that mean other people haven't? Which mm, was yeah. way, like that's, that's mm. extraordinary. But of course, if, if you kind of chart um, the history of this country, that makes sense. Uh, but it's, it's something now that's being lived in that experience is, is really- yeah, People don't- people underestimate the kind of residual impact of the stolen generation um, and how, you know, it kind of didn't stop for, for probably lo a lot longer than what people think. And even now the numbers of our children who are um, living away from their parents are higher than they were at the peak of the stolen generation. Um, that d disconnect from culture and identity, that shame, the fact that, you know, around, well, less than a century ago, you could sign away your Aboriginality so you could be accepted as a white citizen, so you could have more freedoms. Um, and now these days there's certificates of Aboriginality to prove that you are Aboriginal. So like there's this massive shift. It also causes, it causes a lot of hurt. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of things that people need to heal from. Um, and it's very, very complex. And, and that sort of stuff I've become a lot more aware of um, in the last couple of years, because like I said, it's just so different to my experience. And I think, you know, it's one of those things that I try and tread really lightly around because there's so much hurt and there's so much stuff that we just don't know um, for each of these individuals who go through that. And I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, we've seen some of that rhetoric come into the mainstream, you know, um, when there have been, uh, you know, there's been legal cases with the likes of Andrew Bolt, who kind of makes comments about people, you know, I'm more dark than they are, or I, they're not even, and talking in fractions and, and things like that, which is just so inappropriate and um, hurtful. Um, and, and I think that, again, this is why having our stories told through our voices or just having space for us is so important because then people can understand. I, and I am empathetic and, and um, 
you know, forgiving for people who don't know, who don't understand this. You know, I have so often um, in my life had people ask me how much Aboriginal I am, which is one of my hated questions in the world because, you know, I, I am all of me is Aboriginal, um, you know, just because my mum's white, that doesn't take away from my Aboriginality. Um, but but it's also I think as a teenager, I was probably a lot more aggressive when I responded to that question and kind of was like, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. But now I'm um, I have a lot more patience. Um, and yeah, I think I'm a little bit of me is just kind of tired. And, and you know, uh, sometimes I get sick of it. Um, you know, telling the same stories or doing the same education. But my dad's really good at reminding me that, you know, we've been able to come so far because of a lot of this stuff that we've put in place. And this is just about continuing the journey and continuing to pave the path forward. So those who follow me, it'll be a bit easier. So that's what I try and keep in mind, at least. The That sense of, um, you know, empathetic, but also tiredness and exhaustion. <laughs> um, you know, I can, I can hear that in your voice. What, um, where can, you know, we kind of help navigate that? And I say we as a very privileged, you know, white middle-class kind of female sitting here in Australia um, to, to help, I guess, tread gently and I, I really like where you kind of talk about that and I, that kind of resonates for me and kind of treading gently in the same way not putting uh, kind of categories into boxes when we do that then the solution feels really easy as well well you just do this but the solutions aren't there the the, the scenarios are complex and the the strategies and solutions and reconnections are just as complex um and they should be and we should be stepping into to some of those so um I'm, I'm probably more declaring that rather than asking a question to you to say where my head goes is where else can I help and where else? And I'm not asking you to, to respond to that. One of the things where you talked about, you know, and I love that sense of connecting with people who English is their third language and, uh, and therefore that, that strength of immersion and connection to their first nation, nation language, to the, the cultures and, and, um, the experience of that, um, you know, our pathway forward in this country is to continue to kind of share some of some of those. Um, for your experience, where where do you kind of navigate and, and I guess that growth and connection back to whether it's language or um, you know rituals or uh, you know connections you know to culture. Where does um, yeah how does that continue to evolve for you where you're at right now? Yeah, I think that's a really good question and um, probably one that I have not had the time or space to think about because I think that, um, you know, everything that's sort of happened with Titters for Titters in the last two years has become, you know, such a massive part of my life and a part of my kind of contemporary expression of being an Aboriginal person that... Um, you know, the, the real desire and passion to, um, you know, particularly learn my language that I, I did definitely have, you know, just before I launched it. Because, again, for more context, at the same time I was doing um, my honours research in 2018 that similarly was focused on um, the representation of Aboriginal women on film and television. And um, I found myself, I was just kind of, absorbing all these incredible stories um and kind of you know fiction stories made by aboriginal people to kind of 
do this research and um you know just being so involved in that and and my other work that I was doing at the time I was like really kind of um set on going down the path of learning language and um you know I know a few words here or there kind of like anyone does if they've got ancestry with a language other than English but um you know it's never my grandmother didn't speak it and and my um aunties and uncles don't either so it would have to be a really kind of big journey to do that and um it kind of yeah it just definitely came off off the table because of everything else going on and it's something that um you know I'd love to love to do and love to have space to do I feel like there's a part of me that is kind of operating like I only have a certain amount of time to kind of utilize the space that I have at the moment and kind of grow it into whatever it is that is the end game I don't even know um and and then be able to move on and um do you know something else so um it's something that I I want to do I think it's something that my dad would really like to do as well and something we could probably do together um I think probably ideally I'd love to be able to um, pass stuff on to my future children um, to keep that sort of stuff alive. But yeah, that disconnect, the displacement, um, not growing up on country, things like that makes makes it harder and makes it less accessible. But um, there are definitely a lot more pathways that you the University of Newcastle actually does a course on my my language is Camilleray, which is really cool. It feels weird to kind of think about learning that in a university setting, but um, it's definitely something I've thought about. And um, yeah, it's and I that whole that craving for that in that craving for connection and to tradition and things like that, I think is something that's almost universal with all of us, whether you have been so connected or um, you have been displaced or um, I'm still figuring out what it means and, and whatever. So it's, um, yeah, it's a really common story. And I think, I think we're, we're finally in a point in history where we don't have to be fearful for, for craving that. We don't have to um, hide learning language or, or that sort of stuff because for so long it was something we'd be punished for. So, um, yeah, so it, it's definitely a good place to be in and I'll get there eventually um a few things on my plate at the moment no, no, I will no, get that makes sense and look I appreciate again you know that perspective of not only the desire but the the effort required because it's not it's it's not easy because of the disconnect because of that um that has happened because of our history that it does require effort and immersion I imagine which again must feel weird and bizarre to to, to um for it to require that but but the importance of it as well one of the key things i want to talk to you around is that you are launching your first novel in september congratulations like that's it's really really exciting so it's called my tina my sister um talk to me a little bit about the the creative process in in pulling the book together because uh it's hard work, <laughs> but yeah, talk to me a little bit about, I guess, not only the, the desire, but, you know, the practicality, the creative process of actually um, immersing yourself in the writing. Yeah. So, I mean, I've always been a writer. Um, always. It's what I, I studied creative writing at university. I've always been writing. If you'd asked, you know, my much younger self, what my dream in life was, it was to write a book. Um, I thought I'd be self-publishing and I thought I'd be a lot older than what I am. So this has surpassed all the dreams. Um, and it, it's such a, 
such an honor to be able to um, put something out there that I've, you know, really <laughs> uh, unashamedly poured my heart and soul into. Um, and it all kind of kicked off with a DM from a publisher um, on my Instagram, which is apparently that's the way the world works now. Everything Where is we hang out. And there's a lot of things that were quite serendipitous because the publisher was based in Melbourne. Um, at the time I was in Melbourne for two days for a work thing when they reached out um, and they asked if I'd come for lunch and just have a bit of a chat um, about whether I'd ever like to write a book, um, which I was able to say it's only been my life dream too, which is nice. Um, and the office of the publisher was around the corner from the office I was working at, like it just lined up perfectly. And um, I, at the time, my boss was, is who I was working for is such a legend. She was so excited for me. She was like, go right now, like leave, go have this conversation. This is so cool. Um, and it all happened quite quickly because it sort of was an initial conversation, you know, if you could write something, what would it be? Um, and I was like, well, I'd like to do a kind of deeper dive into the stories that we do share on the page that essentially becomes a taster um, for contemporary Aboriginal experiences or the ways that, um, yeah, our stories kind of impact us and this sort of stuff. And um, I, after that meeting, uh, got asked to, to write a one-pager sort of pitch of, of what it would look like. And, and I... <laughs> They told me I had two weeks to do it, but I did it that night because I was so like on top of it and just was so ready to go and like all the creative juices were sort of flowing. Sent it through, um, they sent it to their acquisitions team at the publisher, which is Hardy Grant Books. And I was actually going overseas. I know that's how it feels weird to talk about going overseas in Pretty this era. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, in June last year, I was going to... Europe, which was amazing. And I'm so glad I got to do it last year, um, especially considering, but um, yeah, I said that to them. I was like, look, I'm going to be overseas, but if you need anything, like this is my number, like call me on WhatsApp, whatever, we'll get it done. And in the middle of the night, um, when I was in Italy, I got like a notification on my phone and, um, you know, it woke me up and I looked and it was an email to kind of congratulate me that the acquisition team had agreed and I could write a book. And that was amazing. And the only kind of stressful thing, aside from actually having to write a book, was that um, the time frame was quite short uh, and they wanted to be able to originally the plan was to release it for NADOC week this year, which is usually in July. Um, but then obviously everything's gone on and there was a few other things um, delay wise with editing and stuff that meant it got pushed back to September, but it kind of worked out better. I feel, um, especially with all the COVID stuff. And um, yeah, so I had like nine months um, to write it. It was like, yeah, really like a, a book pregnancy. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. And- yeah, and I started by writing my my family stories, um, the ones that, you know, you start with the ones that you know the best um, and wrote, and I was really excited to write about my nan and my great-grandmother and um, kind of the impact that their stories that I was just surrounded by so much growing up, um, how they impacted me and my understanding of being an Aboriginal woman. Um, so that was really cool. Started there and I was like, okay, I have a really clear vision of what I want it's look like and it's operates in three sections. The first one being aunties of the past. So I spoke to a few women who 
um, told me stories of their grandmothers or um, like those stories that there is one in particular that is um, kind of explores what I was talking about before in terms of reconnecting with those stories and putting the pieces together um, around your identity. It's really interesting um, and also uh, it was quite moving and some of it is I could only describe it as spiritual the way that things have kind of come back to some of these women which is really cool um and yeah so that's that's the focus there and it's a big focus on my my grandmother's there the middle part is to this present so that's women who um you know are, are killing it in in a whole range of things now um from those who've started businesses and are also mothers and and doing all this kind of amazing stuff or have overcome you know some hardships and whatever um to succeed and that's been really cool as well and then the third section is um you the future so that's a couple of young teenage girls around 15 16 who put their hand up to share their stories and um are just like so cool and um, give you a lot of hope for the future. There was one girl in particular who I was in stitches when I interviewed her, like she was hilarious, but also like very staunch and essentially said, tell, uh, I'd like to tell ScoMo I'm coming for his job one day. And that was like, I was like, oh my God, you're amazing. Like, I'll vote for you. Like, this is so good. Um, so there's bits of it that are quite lighthearted. And I mean, inherently it's very optimistic. But there's also some really like heavy and honest and real issues that are discussed in it as well. And there's a bit of poetry in there, a bit of a lot. And um, yeah, it's all tied together with beautiful artwork um, from Rachel Sara, um, who's an Aboriginal artist um, up in Ipswich, so not too far from you. And um, she's just got this incredible bright coloured palette um, and it's just I don't know, it, it kind of emphasises the the hope that I'd hoped to bring with the stories. And it's, um, that sounds beautiful and I love that sense of, you know, past, present uh, and ScoMo's <laughs> future. Um, you know, the person who's going to take over for this country and, and start to make other decisions as well. Um, what has surprised you about this process? Um, just the... I'm, I'm not exactly surprised, but I, I'm just like always amazed by the kind of willingness to share and the openness and the um, generosity of the women who I interviewed. Um, you know, they just kind of gave me everything of themselves um, and all of them did so with the hopes of helping someone else, um, which is just humbling and really beautiful and um yeah, I was I was glad I could do, I hope I've done their stories justice because um, I guess the way it sort of worked was that we'd sit and have a, a yarn for a couple of hours and then I went away and I, it's kind of like I'm reflecting on the conversations that we've had. So um, yeah, me kind of talking about, you know, what they said to me and what I think it means and, um, you know, intertwining my own anecdotes and that sort of stuff as well. So it's yeah it's like a it's like a really like big conversation for myself and the reader and um yeah it's it's pretty special and you may not have thought about this um because you know often you know in that 
kind of book process, as you say, it's it's nine months of pregnancy, it's editing, it's then getting like the that that first copy that you get. Um, and then the work starts of marketing it and getting it out there. Have you thought about where you would like to see this book or where if you saw it at a certain place or someone picked it up and referred to it that you go, wow, that's extraordinary. I don't know whether that's come across or, you know, that, that sense of it's now going out or starting to go out into the world. Yeah. Well, I freaked out when my publisher was like, oh, Kmart's bought 4,000 coffees because I was like, oh, my God, like, I live at Kmart whenever I can. Like, and also that just makes it really accessible. Like, I think that to me is really exciting that it's in a place like that, that is, you know, I mean, like I, I, I do want to support like independent booksellers and that sort of stuff. But um, just because I, I kind of want it to be seen as, you know, by as diverse a group of people as possible, that to me Kmart is like a universal place like everyone loves Kmart <laughs> but um in terms of like you know aside from like literally where it'll be um I, I'm really keen for it to be in a lot of schools um and I've actually had a few teachers reach out to me I actually spoke with a bunch of girls on a zoom call um the other day in WA at a school um the teacher had reached out to me just because a few of them had been struggling with their own self-confidence and identity and things like that and I just had a yarn with them for an hour and um she emailed me yesterday saying that they've actually ordered a few copies of my book for their library because the girls are so excited and want to read it and, and whatever and I think that to me is the the biggest goal I um you know and I'm, I'm sure like you understand this as, um, but like, I didn't really care about book sales. Like when I was starting to write this, I, I always knew like, you know, it, it's such a testy thing. Like you have no idea how you can't predict what things are going to happen. Um, when it comes to buying books and whatever, and, and that wasn't important to me, but, um, you know, knowing that it's going to be in an education space and, and there's going to be girls who are, were like me in high school where I felt incredibly alone as the only Aboriginal kid in my year and one of two in the school with the other one being my sister. Um, it, it just being, I know, it's funny because in year 12 English, um, our like prescribed text was Swallow the Air by Tara June Winch, who I've now had the pleasure of having on my podcast and she's a Wiradjuri writer and that was her debut novel. And it was fiction, but it was about, you know, a 15 year old Aboriginal girl. And when I read it, I it had such a profound impact on me because there were so many things that she went through in, in the character in the book that I had been through. And it made me feel like I wasn't alone and that I could get through the stuff that I'd faced and get past the racist comments and all this sort of stuff and emerge from the other side and be okay. And um, that's, you know, essentially what I would love my book to have that same impact on someone and whether it's they happen to pick it up in the library because it's got a pretty cover um, or, you know, it's a, a, a section of it's used as a pre prescribed text they have to study in class. Um, that would be amazing. I think it would be, um, you know, that to me is such, that's success. And if it's just one person, like it wouldn't bother me if only one book got sold. Um, but if that's what it the impact was that's that's enough for me so yeah it's it's um it's surreal that i'm even able to say that that's i mean yeah 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 it's it's really really exciting and that sense of again that connection to identity um you know i love you sharing that story i've just finished reading the yield um oh. by tara Lynch june and just extraordinary i think I, I put it on instagram and said this is a must read this is not a 
nice to have is it's compulsory. Incredible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think that that sense of connection um, and yeah, you sh- you sharing that story. I you know I I think of it through the lens of of my kids. So I have a twelve and a ten year old. Um, I distinctly remember when my daughter was in in prep, which is kindergarten, um, coming home one day and she said to me, Mum, I wish I was Aboriginal. (laughs) And (laughs) she said, I wish you were too, darling, but there's not a whole lot I can do about that. Um, But for her, like, you know, that looking through those eyes, um, she had an Indigenous lady who was doing reading um, she was in a kind of a higher level in reading support and working with her around that. She's just a beautiful, beautiful soul. And I think that's where it kind of came from. Um, but I, you know, that sense of connection to culture, whilst it's not her ancestry or or background, there's still a connection to country um, and to the stories that are woven into that, that I would love her to be a part of and to crave as well so i love that sense of of call of you know having it in libraries in in schools um as a bit of a call out for anyone listening this is not my idea but i certainly have seen a few people more for um because i've been more in kind of that primary schools but you know having indigenous authors i've actually gone and purchased a few books recently to give to the school library and so even if you're not a teacher it doesn't have to be on teachers this book um you know just hearing you say that it's something i'm going to go and do buy 10 copies and give it to my son's high school because i think you know that's something that we can do and share and have it in those places as just another part of the conversation and another part of the story. So it is exciting. It's surreal. And I'm sure it's going to be a wild journey, um, let alone doing a book launch in COVID-19 times <laughs> and virtually and all of that sort of stuff as well is going to be, yeah, really, really interesting. One of the other things that you do, one of the other strings to your bow is you have a podcast series called uh, Always Was, Always Will Be, Our Stories. Mm. Um what is it around and obviously storytelling is what's woven into all parts whether it's a creative writing that you've done um you know coming out of your um your you know when you talked about your honors uh as well as you know the podcast um and the movement uh you know storytelling is the theme that for me is what i'm hearing is kind of sits behind that um what what do you enjoy about the podcast that you do um, and what surprises you about, you know, providing that platform for stories to be shared? Yeah, I love podcasting. It's so um, fun and for me, it, it especially because, so originally I had the Titus for Titus, the podcast, which was with the Mum and Mia network and they kind of gave me my start and I didn't even really understand what a podcast was when they first approached me. So that was such an incredible learning experience. And, um, you know, after two seasons with them where the focus was just on Aboriginal women, um, I had always kind of openly discussed with them that I wanted to step out on my own and be 100% Aboriginal owned and run. And um, COVID provided an opportunity to get creative and um, make it happen, you know, from from my bedroom with the USB mic and, um, you know, Zoom or Zencaster and all those sorts of apps. And, um, you know, thankfully, because everyone was at home in lockdown, they're all available to be interviewed. Um, and I, I just had so much fun and I loved even though like you, I, I do prefer to do things face to face. The benefit of doing it this way was in my last two seasons of um, the podcast, I, you know, 
missed out on a few interview opportunities because the people I wanted to interview weren't in Sydney and weren't able to come to the Surrey Hills studio where I was. Um, and now, I, you know, I've done interviews with women in um, Kununurra in, in WA and, and in Darwin and in um, Melbourne and everywhere. And um, that just means that I get even more stories and like more interesting um, experiences and that sort of stuff. So it's been amazing. It, it's um. I, I did it, you know, literally with, with not much of a plan, kind of how Titus for Titus started, just kind of going, I just want to just have yarns and put it out there. And um, I'd done a little bit of work with Spotify Australia at the beginning of the year, and um, they were a really big help around the logistics of stuff and um, just putting me in the, in the right direction. And, um, you know, I, I think I probably was... Um, I'm glad that I was quite relaxed about things not sounding super professional or not being this really polished thing and I was just kind of winging it and, and you know, writing off the fact that the stories stories were really good so it didn't really matter um, about anything else and, and I was kind of right. Like I launched in, you know, Reconciliation Week in May um, with my first episode and it just um, reached so many people and um, really had a, an amazing um, response because the story was so good and, and featured a, a friend of mine who grew up in the foster care system and has his own charity that helps our kids in the system and, and things like that. And, um, you know, I'm so lucky to be connected to so many amazing people like that. So it made the talent pool um, pretty, pretty easy to pick from. And, um, but then there was, there's also been like really um, out of nowhere uh, interviews with the likes of Nakia Louie and Miranda Tapsell, which I never thought was going to happen, but that just did. It landed in my inbox and I was like, oh my gosh, fangirling. How do I interview these people? I love them so much. Um, you know, and it it's such a, such a pleasure. And I, I, for me, I see them like all, I treat every single conversation how I would if we were just catching up over a cup of coffee um, and, and that's my interview style and it's because I'm genuinely interested in what they have to say and I know that you know I try my best to put myself in the shoes of the audience because um, you know what do I like to listen to what do I want to know about these people what gives you know what is it something that I can learn from them and and that's what I hope I'm, I'm producing with the with the podcast and um, it's actually quite funny on the weekend I <laughs> was just at a, a, my local coffee shop and um, the barista asked me my name with my order. And then she went, I listened to your podcast and actually like recognized me. And I was like, hang on, how do you recognize me? Because it's not my face, but also like, thanks for listening, <laughs> which is embarrassing. That's cool. but, um, no, that's it was pretty cool. <laughs> no that's awesome that's awesome I mean that, I agree with you I I mean I love the the interviews and the conversations and part of it um I was kind of thinking about you know what is the magic and what is it the opportunity to sit down and and have a conversation I also think it's pretty rare for us to be um not distracted by anything else or 40 minutes to an hour or so and just really be present with someone else um, to really kind of dive into questions. And I'm, yeah, a bit with you. It's like, I don't mind where it goes or uh, what that kind of path is. And, and often it is a point in time. And um, even mentioned before, if I asked you some of these questions tomorrow, there might be slightly different answers, but there's something about this kind of just, you know, time mark in a, in a point in time in, in those pieces 
in those conversations as well. That's, that's really powerful. So, um, and yeah, you're right in amongst these times, your access and, and conversations with people that would normally be traveling and going around the world uh, now have, have space and, and capacity to, and, and presence, I think, to, to dive into some of those, those conversations as well. This year has been a massive year, not only with a book coming out and COVID-19 in amongst, uh, in amongst the mix, which has meant that all of us are facing huge amounts of uncertainty and change and having to redesign and I guess reassess uh, what's important to us, um, the way that we turn up and do it. Um, and I've been talking to a lot of people about even just even using that language around kind of grief and loss for the year that we had planned. Uh, this, you know, new decade, I think a lot of people came into 2020 with a sense of, okay, I'm going to be tackling this. And some of those things can be just family holidays or um, trips or, you know, small things, but, but there is this sense of loss, you know, in amongst that on a, on a personal level, how are you kind of navigating some of the, the ups and downs of uncertainty, change, or, you know, even speaking to that, that sense of, kind of loss or newness in amongst uh, this current environment? When it all kind of first kicked off, um, because it sort of was like, I was down in, in Melbourne um, again. I was, at this point I was in Melbourne every two weeks essentially, and um, was there for the uh, Melbourne Fashion Festival speaking at, um, I was hosting a panel. I literally walked off the stage, they canceled the rest of the festival. Um, one of the panelists I was, um, meant to have was Lisa Gorman, um, the designer, and she actually pulled out last minute because one of her employees had been diagnosed with COVID. And it was like, all of a sudden it was very, very real. I mean, my Uber back to the airport to get on a plane and it sort of, the airport was quite surreal again because everyone's hovering around the TVs because the prime minister's on doing this press conference. And it kind of wasn't paying that much attention. And I was on the phone to my mom being like, this is so crazy. like. And I kind of made a joke, like, thank God I was, you know, I was so good on that panel. They had to cancel the rest of the festival, like whatever. And, um, you know, over that weekend, it was kind of like everything's done. Like everything's shut down. Like we're, we're going into these restrictions, going into this lockdown. Um, and then on Monday morning, I got about 10 emails from 10 different um, pieces of work that I was doing um, saying things were cancelled. And um, I at first was like, oh, postponed, don't you mean? And then realized that no, like they were being canceled, 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 or postponed indefinitely, or we don't know if we're ever gonna be able to do it, whatever, whatever. And then it was like, after that week of things being canceled and trying to scramble in a few more bits of work before it all sort of fell apart, I went, oh my God, I don't have any work for two months. There's like nothing. And at, at the beginning of this year was me, <laughs> Um, I chose a great year to step out and be completely independent um, and, you know, quit my full-time job last year to take all of this other stuff on and focus on doing media around the book and, and the podcast and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then I was like, oh my gosh, I have no income. And that was meant to support all this other stuff that I do, you know, for free essentially. Um, and we had all these plans and I had started building a curriculum for a school program with Titus for Titus and everything. And I was like, just in a bit of shock for a minute and was kind of like oh my god and a part of me was like wanted to be really sad but my mum works for Qantas and um watching her go through that and 
her just being she's worked there for 32 years and her, her, essentially it's her extended family and watching all of her friends just like be on the phone to each other crying and um being gutted and thinking that their industry is over and that the the company that they love is gone and they're worried about all these um you know people in um their lives who you know are already a little bit fragile um mentally and they're worried about them them you know doing something to themselves if the pressure gets too hard and all this sort of stuff and my dad's a police officer so then he's you know monitoring the hotel quarantine stuff and and i'm kind of like oh, okay got to get perspective but i think because i was so focused on what was happening with my family and even my sister is in her last year of uni and they were talking about cancelling her um, a few of the placements and it would mean that she wouldn't graduate until next year. She's about to be a physiotherapist. And she was freaking out being like, I, I've been at uni for six years. I'm not, you know, I don't want to do another one. And so everyone was kind of in chaos and watching a lot of other people struggle. I think I didn't let myself mourn. I think I went on, okay, perspective. You know, I'm in a privileged position where I'm not going to be kicked out of my house. I do have enough savings to survive. Um, and I don't have kids or a mortgage I have to worry about. So, you know, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Worry about everyone else. And then, you know, I remember seeing like memes being like, hey, Shakespeare wrote King Lear in isolation when the plague was on. So, you know, you got some space to be creative. And I think that creative people or people who, um, you know, even just have some, are quite ambitious or whatever, probably put a lot of um, pressure on themselves to use it as an opportunity to work on something new because they couldn't do their normal work. And um, But then, you know, I probably four weeks in, I was like in bed watching Netflix being like, I actually don't have the emotional capacity to do anything. Um, and it was because I hadn't let myself mourn. And probably coming to that point of acceptance and also, um, you know, sort of, you know, being validated by my family members kind of going, hey, you're allowed to be sad. You've essentially been trying to build your business, um, you know, for the beginning of this. And now a lot of it's up in the air and you don't know what's going to happen. So it's okay to kind of go, oh, that's really crap. And I'm sad for myself and also for the hopes that I had, you know, of what we were going to do this year. Um, so feel it watch Netflix for a couple of days and then we'll pick back up and keep going. Um, and, and that was, you know, it was a, a tough transition, but like once I got through it, um, yeah, now I, I kind of am just more realistic about things. And there's definitely some little sometimes where I'm like, Oh my God, I hate this thing. Like my, my best friend actually lives on the Gold Coast and she rang me yesterday and there's like, yeah, I think that your premier might've said something. There's a possibility that borders could be closed to Christmas and all her family's down here and she was upset and I'm upset because I'm not going to get to see her and all this stuff. And, um, you know, those sorts of things you feel really crap about, but um, yeah, no, especially, and when I mentioned right at the beginning of this conversation that me and my family, it's probably brought us a lot closer together. I mean, we've always been really close, but, um, you know, we haven't, we haven't been at each other's throats or anything, which I, I think, you know, when it was really in the thick of the lockdown, we were a bit worried that we'd be in too much in each other's space, but it's been fine and it's been, um, really good actually. And, um, yeah, I've also just like used the opportunities for when I've had like space and clarity and um, just to like really, you know, um, focus on, on my well-being and got into running in isolation. Um, I've never been a runner and I decided I was going to train for a 10K run and then did it. And like that is something I'd never thought I was able to do. So you've got to focus on all the positives, all the silver linings. And, um, you know, the podcast is definitely a silver lining of this as well. It's, it's, um, it's, it's definitely those waves, right? And you can do them within an hour of going, it's whole shit. 
to, I don't know, I've got space and time finally for everything I wanted to do or, you know, want to start to put into place. Um, in terms of the running, are there other things that you do on a really practical level to help kind of refill the cup or to re-energise? Because again, creativity requires that. Um, and yes, you know, the, the emotional experience is part of the creative process, but also having that kind of clarity and presence is really important and as well. And part of that is being able to monitor whether it's your own mental well-being or just energy state. Uh, so on a practical level, and I love that you've gotten into running, are there other things that you do to kind of uh, to re-energise, reconnect um, or to kind of fill yourself up again? Yeah, I think another thing that's sort of um, closely connected to running or being outside is that we live really close to the Royal National Park down here and there's so many beautiful bushwalks and um, just like quiet places and, and things like that, which um, I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of months just going out and walking or, um, you know, sitting in places and, and that sort of stuff um, and just kind of trying to be mindful um, is, um, yeah, I feel very, very lucky that that's really close to us and um, I think I would be yeah struggling a bit more if i was just kind of in the middle of the cbd or something um so that's really good uh i yeah i don't know i think another thing which is kind of random is i uh do a little bit of presenting on triple j um as a radio host sometimes and i do like mid-dawn shifts so from midnight to six in the morning and that sounds like people's worst nightmare and it is definitely really tough around the 3am part but I've found when I've been able to do those shifts and literally just be there and listening to music and really listening to music I feel really good like just even if it's heaps late at night you know if I've managed to sneak a nap in beforehand that's even better but if I'm just sitting there really listening and I think probably because you know Triple J is like 80% Australian music really listening to all these like great Aussie bands and like knowing how much the arts industry is struggling as well. I think for me, I'm like becoming this real like fangirl for a lot of small bands and um, just loving listening to them and, and reading their stories online. So every time I play a song, I like Google them and read stuff. And that is like such a random thing and very specific and not a lot of people get to do that. But um, there's definitely something about listening to music and, and really just like having that as my kind of completely separate to everything side hobby um, where I can just really enjoy it and be, you know, just think about the lyrics or whatever. So that's, that's really fun and um, something I, I really enjoy as well. I love that, that sense of just being really present and being, yeah, that, um, I mean, I'm excited about the, the creativity that will come, whether it's movies, um, you know, TV series, books, music uh, in this, you know, in this time, but my heart breaks absolutely for the arts industry and the, uh, and those that, you know, their, their income relies on gigs, which who knows, um, because it is the thing that connects us and connects us back to our humanity and our, our community as well. We need it. Uh, it's such a critical part of our world. So, um, but I love that, that sense of just being really present to, to music. I'm so excited about this book coming out. We'll definitely share all the links and, uh, and, and get a chance for people to be able to kind of connect it and grab their copies as well. Um, and I've loved this conversation. I want to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Um, I think, yeah, that's tough. It is tough. Um, but 
for me, my like personally in, in my life, something that's really important to me to stand out is just remaining really true to yourself um, and uh, making decisions that are really formed by your gut instinct and trusting that. I think that's why I've been able to do what I'm able to do is it's not second guess yourself too much and don't be afraid to fail and um, just take a risk, take a chance. And you only, it's so cliched, but you only um, regret the chances you don't take, I think. And um, that's, that to me is, I think probably something we talk about a lot, but is, is kind of harder to find in reality um, is that, because we get a lot of expectations put on us, whether it's self-imposed or by the people around us. I had plenty of people who laughed at me when I told them I was studying creative writing, um, but it's been integral in, in putting me in the position that I'm in. And I did it because it was something I loved. So um, yeah, really following your heart and, and putting in the hard work, um, but also being kind to yourself and making space for the fun is really important as well. Beautiful, Marley. Thanks so much for your time. It's been, uh, it's been such a delight. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's amazing episode. These are episodes that I want to continue to bring to the world because I believe everyone has a story to share and that we can learn and grow by diving into these stories. Now, if you have gotten something out of today's episode or any of the episodes from the Standout Life podcast series, then it's highly likely that you know someone else who would get something from these episodes as well. So my ask to you is to please share the series, send someone today a link, subscribe, rate and review. And by doing that, this podcast starts to pop and be seen by others around the world and we can continue to expand the people, the conversations and the insights that we share together.